There's more than one way to learn something in life. You can learn by watching someone do things the right way, and you can learn by watching someone do things the wrong way. Well, we're presently in a series here at Broadway Church that we've entitled Really Bad Examples. It's a series dedicated to investigating the lives of some people who did things the wrong way. Now, it's our goal to learn from their mistakes and avoid their failures. Last week, we took an up-close and personal look at the life of Judas Iscariot, the disciple that betrayed Jesus. And today, we're putting the magnifying glass upon the life of the man known as Pontius Pilate. Now, who was Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor. Now, when a lot of people are reading the New Testament, there can be confusing at times. Like, okay, what is there a Roman governor? But I thought Herod was the king, but then there's the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. Like, what's going on? How did all these people work together? Well, let me put it this way. During the first century AD, the Roman Empire spanned thousands of miles. Since the empire was so vast, the Roman Caesars appointed leaders to oversee various geographical regions. Now, for many years, Herod the Great was assigned the task of ruling over the region of Israel on Caesar's behalf. We're going to actually learn more about Herod the Great next week. When Herod the Great died, Caesar respected Herod's written will, and he allowed Israel to be divided up and ruled by Herod's three sons. That's what Herod the Great wanted. Herod Antipas was given the Galilean and Samaritan region. Herod Philip was given much of the north and east of the Jordan River. Herod Archelaus was given the southern region of Judea where Jerusalem is. That was the plan. However, Herod Archelaus did such a terrible job overseeing Judea that Caesar had him removed from his position and started sending politicians from Rome to oversee that area. And in the year A.D. 26, Pontius Pilate was sent to Judea to be the Roman governor. Now, being sent to Judea was not a prime political assignment. In fact, it was one of the lowest rungs on the Roman political ladder. Being assigned the role of governor of Judea in the first century would be like being assigned the role of ambassador to Afghanistan today. It's a tough job. Like Afghanistan, Judea was notorious for being chaotic and ungovernable. That's because the Jews hated the Romans, and they did everything they could to sabotage them. But Pilate was a politician with ambition, and Pilate was going to do all that he could to climb the ladder. Now, I love to watch sports, pretty well any sport, really. However, one sport I find particularly frustrating to watch is figure skating. Now, the reason for my frustration is not the quality of the competition. The reason for my frustration is the corruption of the judges. Over the years, figure skating has been notorious for corrupt judges. And one of the most famous examples of this kind of corruption took place during the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. The pair's figure skating competition came down to the pair from Russia and the pair from Canada. Now, everyone who watched the competition seemed to agree that the Canadian pair easily won the competition. However, to the shock of the world, the judges awarded the gold medal to the Russian pair. The outcry was so loud and so widespread and so unrelenting that the Olympic Committee did an immediate investigation during the Olympics. And sure enough, it was discovered that the French judge had been bribed by the Russian judge. 
The Russian judge promised to give the French skaters a higher mark if the French judge agreed to give the Russian skaters a higher mark. Well, with the corruption exposed, the Canadians were awarded gold medals. There are few things in life as distasteful and ugly as a corrupt judge. I say all that because Pontius Pilate was a corrupt judge. Except the stakes in the matter where Pilate was called to judge were much higher than a mere trophy or medal. This was about life and death. It was roughly 33 AD, and for the previous three years, Jesus of Nazareth had been traveling throughout the countryside of Israel, turning the world upside down with his teaching and his miracles. Instead of being excited by this, however, the Jewish religious leaders were furious. They were furious because they were jealous of Jesus' popularity. The crowds were following him and listening to him and not the Jewish religious leaders. Now, not only were the religious leaders jealous of Jesus, they were also quite fearful of Jesus. They were fearful that Jesus was going to decrease their political power, the power they had been accumulating over the decades. How do we know this? Look at their reaction to the undeniable and incredible miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Scripture records, the leader said, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see what they were saying? Listen, he's done this miracle. This is incredible. If, if we don't stop him, he's going to do more miracles. He's going to raise more people from the dead. And people are going to believe him understandably, but if they believe him, then they're going to follow him, and we're going to lose all of our authority and our power. The Romans are going to come in. They're going to take away the temple from us. That's our source of strength. They're going to take away our nation from us. We're going to lose all of our authority. They're saying, we've got a good thing going here. Jesus is going to ruin it for us. Now, Judas Iscariot, who we met last week, he provided these men with the opportunity to arrest Jesus, but now that they had him arrested, they need to find a good reason to have him killed. Their problem was they didn't have the authority to kill someone. The Sanhedrin just had religious authority. They didn't have authority over life and death. Only the Roman governor had that authority. So they needed to find a way to convince Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus had committed a crime that was worthy of death. So they did their best to scrape together some charges, and they brought Jesus to Pilate to be judged. Now, as recorded in the four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, Pilate then investigated the charges. Pilate interrogated Jesus, and Pilate interrogated Jesus' accusers. During the interrogation, Pilate's wife even sent her husband a message that said, and I quote, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. She said, I had a bad dream. This is not good. Stay away from this guy. So what did Pontius Pilate do? Well, to make a long story short, after a lot of back and forth between Pilate and the crowd, Pontius Pilate publicly pronounced the man Jesus innocent. And then Pontius Pilate publicly sentenced Jesus to death. You say, what? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. But that's exactly what happened. Pilate knowingly and publicly sentenced an innocent man to death. 
why? Why would he do such a thing? How could he do such a thing? What made Pilate so corrupt? Well, from what we can piece together from the historical documents, we can deduce that there were three main causes of corruption in Pontius Pilate's life. First of all, Pilate had no respect for the truth. Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus, so is it true that you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. That was a Judas, Jewish idiom for saying, yep. And then Jesus goes on to say, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus said. What is truth, retorted Pilate. I recently came across a list of the top three things you never want to hear from your surgeon while they're performing surgery on you. The third thing was, has anyone seen my clamp? I seem to have misplaced my clamp. It was attached to that artery a minute ago. Where's my clamp? The second thing you don't want to hear your surgeon say is, what's that? And the number one thing you never want to hear your surgeon say when they're performing surgery on you is, oops. Well, Pontius Pilate just uttered the number one phrase you never want to hear your judge say when you're standing before them. What is truth? Truth is whatever agrees with reality. Truth isn't dependent upon what I feel or what I want or what I hope or what I desire. Truth is entirely rooted in what actually is. Truth is whatever agrees with reality. Show me a person who struggles with grasping the concept of truth, and I'll show you a person who struggles with grasping reality. Well, how could Pilate knowingly sentence an innocent man to death because he was a corrupt judge? And Pilate was a corrupt judge because Pilate had no respect for the truth. Which leads us to a second reason why Pilate was corrupt. Pilate was a corrupt judge because he refused to follow the evidence. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. It's not that Pilate was confused by the evidence or he lacked evidence. No, he was given evidence. Pilate was convinced by the evidence. Pilate simply refused to follow the evidence. John records Pilate's own summary of the evidence. Look what Pilate says. He says, I find no basis for a charge against him. I find, I've investigated, I find no charge. Look, he said, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. A third time, Pilate answered them, as for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And then his conclusion, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The evidence was plain to Pilate. Jesus was innocent of all charges. He found him innocent. Pilate simply refused to follow the evidence. Now, it would be easy to condemn Pilate here, to pile on and mock him, but let's pull back for a moment and do a little introspection. How many times in life have you and I refused to follow the evidence? You're presented with two options. You're presented with two alternatives. The evidence is convincing. You know what the right option is. You know what the correct alternative is, but you prefer the wrong option. You desire the alternative option. So you follow what you desire and you ignore what you know. Like Pilate, you refuse to follow the evidence. 
I've done it, and I dare say that you've done it as well. And every time we do it, we expose the corruption in our own hearts. The corruption that brought Jesus to this earth and sent Jesus to the cross. Pontius Pilate knew this corruption. He blatantly and unapologetically lived it out for the world to see. He had no respect for the truth. He refused to follow the evidence. And finally, Pilate chose to follow the crowd. In Mark's biography of Jesus' life, he describes the mob scene at Pilate's palace that day. The crowd shouting. The religious leaders are accusing. Pilate's waffling. Looking for an out, Pilate reminds the people of a custom. Apparently, during the Passover festival, it was common for the Romans to release a prisoner as a gift to the people. Pilate says, hey, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. Pilate knew what was going on. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Let's pause there for a second. Barabbas was a criminal. He had incited a resurrection. He had murdered some people. He was in prison and the crowd said, no, release Barabbas instead. Let's, let's keep reading. Well, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. You want me to re- release Barabbas? What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him, the crowd shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Look at this next line. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged or whipped and handed him over to them to be crucified. For the longest time, there was something about this scene that bothered me. There was something about the last few days of Jesus' life on earth that just didn't make sense to me. I mean, think about it. On Sunday, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to cheering crowds that are lining the streets, celebrating him, waving palm branches, acknowledging him as king, welcoming him. And just a few days later that week, crowds are cursing him, calling for him to be crucified. What happened? How does that happen? It never really made sense to me. Until I studied history and discovered what was going on behind the scenes, I discovered what historians know regarding the political atmosphere that was swirling around Pontius Pilate on that Friday morning in 33 AD. And when you discover what the historians know today, you understand what the biblical writers were trying to describe back then. And you come to recognize that the level of manipulation and trolling that was taking place that day was world-class. Let me show you what I mean. We learned earlier that Pontius Pilate was an ambitious man. He was doing everything he could to please Tiberius Caesar. But Pilate's ambitious nature had been working against him lately. On the day when Jesus was standing on trial before Pilate, Pilate was standing on thin ice with Caesar. Dr. Paul Mayer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, he wrote an entire book on the life of Pontius Pilate. What Dr. Mayer uncovered from ancient historical sources like Josephus is fascinating. 
A few years before the trial of Jesus, Pilate caused a riot in Jerusalem when he had his Roman troops march into the city carrying flags with medallions and images of the Roman emperor on them. He even had them placed in the temple. This infuriated the Jews as they considered this blasphemy. So the Jews unleashed a riot that lasted for five days. Pilate finally backed down and he removed the images. A while later, Pilate was at it again. He was sick of the poor drinking water in Jerusalem, so he built an aqueduct from Bethlehem, just a couple miles away, to Jerusalem to improve Jerusalem's water supply. Sounds good, right? What's the problem? The problem was this. Pilate financed the project by stealing money from the temple treasury in Jerusalem. Well, this sparked another riot, with Pilate's troops getting very aggressive and killing several Jews in the uprising. Word of this chaos reached Caesar in Rome, and he was not impressed. And Pilate was informed that he needed to change how he was handling the Jewish people. He needed to stop provoking them, he was told, or he'd be removed from his position. Pilate tried to calm down his ambitious nature, but he couldn't seem to help himself. A little while later, Pilate set up several golden shields in his office in his Jerusalem apartment with several flags that had insignia honoring Tiberius Caesar on them. Again, the Jews protested against such blaspheming, blasphemy in their holy city so close to their temple. And once again, they began to protest and riot. Well, Pilate dug in his heels and refused to take the flags down this time. Caesar was informed of this latest skirmish, and he wrote a nasty letter to Pilate. He informed Pilate that he was on thin ice, that Pilate needed to immediately stop provoking his Jewish subjects, and that Caesar himself was watching things very closely. Pilate received that letter of warning from Caesar just five months before Good Friday. And here we are, five months later, on Good Friday morning, We've got an angry mob led by Jewish leaders once again standing before Pilate with a man that they want killed. A man that we've just seen Pilate knew was innocent. This is what the Bible says. Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting. Now look what they said. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And then look what they said. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. No, no, wait a minute, time out. What were the chief priests shouting? We have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding me? The Jews hated Rome. The Jews hated Caesar. The Jews hated every single sign of presence of Rome and every single emblem of Roman occupation. The Jews despised everything to do with Rome and the Romans. And here we have Jewish religious leaders shouting, we have no king but Caesar. Are you serious? This was trolling and manipulation at a world-class level. The religious leaders knew Pilate's weakness. They knew his political ambitions. They knew that he was vulnerable. So they played Pilate like a fiddle. Pilate was no fool. He knew what was going on here. He could see right through the political stunt that the Jewish leaders were pulling. I mean, it was obvious. It was early in the morning, right before Passover. Where did this spontaneous, angry political mob suddenly come from? 
Pilate knew this was staged. He knew this was theater. Pilate knew this had all been prearranged by the Jewish leaders. Nonetheless, the trap was set. He had been painted into a corner and he knew it when it came to what to do with this innocent man that these leaders wanted killed for their own protection. So Pilate had a decision to make. He could follow the truth or he could follow the trolls. Matthew's biography of Jesus records what happened next. Matthew wrote, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he didn't want another uproar, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. But he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. There are some stains that water cannot remove. And history will forever record the cowardice and failure of this Roman governor, this corrupt judge. So what can we learn from this really bad example? I think back to my last year of high school. I had become a Christ follower in my last year of high school. And uh, I wasn't living a life of a Christian. I had no discipleship, really. I wasn't really attending church, per se, consistently. So I was living two lives. I had become a follower of Jesus. I told my friends I'd become a follower of Jesus. But I wasn't living like a follower of Jesus. Not yet, anyway. And we were having a big party at the end of our school year. There was about 100, 150 of us all together out in this field, partying together. And, and there's a lot of drinking and carousing going on. I had my guitar and my two friends were in front of me. It was this huge crowd was there too. My two friends were fighting on the ground. They were drunk and fighting. And I was playing Give Peace a Chance while my friends were fighting. And my one friend who was fighting got up from the fight, looked me in the eye, and he punched me right in the face as I was playing this song. The whole crowd stopped, and they went, whoa. And my friend Jeff looked at me, he said, Latham, you're a hypocrite. You call yourself a Christian, but you're no different from the rest of us. And the crowd went, ooh. And I just stopped playing my guitar. I took my guitar off my shoulder. I walked through the crowd to my car, got in my car, drove home, and that changed the direction of my life from that moment on. In fact, I just saw that friend again about a year and a half ago. We were together back in Ontario, and uh, the other friends that were with us reminded my friend Jeff about what happened that day, and he said, oh, Darren, I am so sorry. He went on to be a cop, by the way. He said, I am so sorry for that. I'm embarrassed. I said, no, Jeff, you helped me that day. That day, you helped change the direction of my life. You snapped me into reality. You see, on that day, back in 1981, I was Pilate. I was following the crowd. And oddly enough, by following the crowd, I actually lost the respect of the crowd. And I lost all self-respect as well. I wasn't useful to the people around me, and I certainly wasn't useful to God. So what was I accomplishing by following the crowd? It's a lesson I learned early in my life. It's the lesson of Pontius Pilate. And it will stand as our big idea today. And here it is. If you can't be true, you can't be trusted. If you can't be true, you can't be trusted. Neither the world nor the one who created the world has any esteem for the man or the woman who cannot be true. 
If you have no respect for the truth, if you ignore the evidence, and if you simply follow the crowd, don't expect to have a positive impact upon the world around you. Why? Because if you can't be true, you can't be trusted. It's really that simple. Well, as we conclude, what can we do to prevent ourselves from following Pilate's really bad example? Really quickly, let me leave you with two important things to remember. First of all, remember that following Christ is acknowledging the truth, not creating your own truth. Following Christ is acknowledging the truth, it's not creating your own truth. Folks, we are more and more living in a world that treats truth as though it was pliable and bendable and fluid from person to person or moment to moment. More and more, we hear people talking about my truth and your truth. Truth is not something we create personally. Truth is something we recognize and acknowledge. And it's through recognizing and acknowledging the truth that you and I will experience the freedom that we crave. The Bible says this, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A second thing to remember to prevent ourselves from following Pilate's really bad example is this. Remember that following Christ is recognizing that the power of the one within you is greater than the power of the crowd around you. The power of the one within you is greater than the power of the crowd around you. Peer pressure. I mean, we all feel it. We all experience it. We're all vulnerable to it. It's not easy to be a lone voice in a room. It's not easy to step away from the crowd. It's not easy to walk against the flow, be it in your school, your workplace, your neighborhood, even your family. However, that's exactly what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. And the good news is that God has equipped us to do that very thing. I love the Phillips translation of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says this, Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. What Scripture is saying there is that the Spirit of God dwells within us. He lives within us and He transforms us. You've often heard me say at the end of a sermon, when we're praying that, God, please transform me, change me from the inside out. That's what the indwelling Spirit of God does. Through our circumstances, through His presence within us, He begins to change us and transform us, remold our minds from the inside out. I believe it was the legendary ball player named Babe Ruth who once observed that the loudest boos come from the cheapest seats. What's the quality of the crowd that has your attention? What kind of voices are you listening to? Following Christ is recognizing that the power of the one within you is greater than the power of the crowd around you. Well, let's conclude. Pontius Pilate, the corrupt judge who knowingly and willingly sentenced an innocent man to death. Pontius Pilate, a really bad example. Pontius Pilate, the man who taught us, if you can't be true, you can't be trusted. How can we avoid following his really bad example? By doing two things. Number one, acknowledge the truth, don't create your own truth. And secondly, recognize that the power of the one within you is greater than the power of the crowd around you. Let's pray together. 
God, again, we thank you for your patience in our lives. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. When we were untrue, you still remained true. And you brought us to that place of repentance. You brought us to that place of acknowledging our own sinfulness and our own rebellion. Thank you for your grace, your mercy in our lives. Through your spirit living within us as followers of you, transform us, change us, strengthen us, give us the power to stand against the flow of the world around us. And if you're watching today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you've not yet accepted his gift of forgiveness and mercy. You've not yet accepted his gift of eternal life that he purchased by willingly going to the cross and dying and being raised from the dead on your behalf. I wanna give you an opportunity to accept that gift right now. Pray with me as I pray on your behalf. God, I acknowledge that I've not always been true. I acknowledge that I have rebelled against you. I have sinned. I don't wanna live that way anymore. So I ask you to come into my life to fill me with your spirit, to change me, to forgive me, to cleanse me, and give me power to live a new life. I know I won't be perfect and sinless, but if I confess my sin, the Bible says you'll be faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all my sin. I do that now. I confess and I invite you to come in my life. And give me the courage to tell somebody about this decision I've made before my head hits the pillow this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, on the screen right now, there's a number. I encourage you to text that number. Now, don't worry, you're not joining Broadway Church or we're not gonna harass you or put you on a mailing list. One of our team is simply gonna text back to you and offer our help to you in any way we can to help you take the next step in your journey towards Christ-centered living. God bless you. Thank you for joining with us on this version of Really Bad Examples at Broadway Church. Next week, we're going to look at the really bad example of Herod the Great, the man who is responsible for trying to kill the baby Jesus. We're going to learn more about him next week. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today.